Welcome to a special look at Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. What we've done all this time. What are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir, at my friends. Confronting fear. It's the destiny of a Jedi. Your destiny. We're all in this. <laughs> I'm Richard Krause. Welcome to a special look at Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, billed as the end of the Skywalker saga. Before we look at how it ends, let's take a look at how it began. Well, the Force is what gives the Jedi his power. Han Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. It seems hard to remember now, but there was a time, not so long ago, and in our very own galaxy, when there was no Star Wars. In 1974, George Lucas wasn't yet the genius behind Star Wars. He'd made one flop and had one mega-hit, American Graffiti, under his belt. Where were you in 62? For the next project, he envisioned a remake of the Flash Gordon movie serials from the 1930s. Trouble was, he couldn't get the rights. Instead, he created his own space fantasy film. By May 1974, he had expanded the story to include familiar elements like the Sith, the Death Star, that's no moon, it's a space station, Chewbacca, and a general by the name of Anakin Starkiller. Several studios turned his script, then called The Star Wars Down, one said the idea was a little strange, while another suggested he should follow the success of American Graffiti with something more substantial. 20th Century Fox finally stepped up, providing a budget of $9 million, which bloomed to $11 million. And even then, Lucas says it wasn't quite enough. The first film was really hard. <laughs> it was painful. It was unpleasant. We never had enough time or enough money and we were always compromising on everything, and it was a difficult experience all the way around. Early opinions on the film were not promising. Harrison Ford thought it strange that, quote, there's a princess with weird buns in her hair, unquote. I got a bad feeling about this. And called Chewbacca a giant in a monkey suit. But the worst came from George Lucas's friends. After a test screening, almost everyone, including Lucas himself, thought the film would flaunt. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Brian De Palma reportedly called it the worst movie ever. Only Steven Spielberg, who was making Close Encounters of the Third Kind at the time, thought it would make money. George hung out with me for a couple of days and looked around and said, oh my God, your movie's gonna be so much more successful than Star Wars. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll trade points with you. You wanna trade some points? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you Two and a half percent of Star Wars if you give me two and a half percent of Close Encounters. So I said, sure, I'll gamble with that. Close Encounters was just a, a, a meager 
success story. And Star Wars was a, a phenomenon. And of course, I was the happy beneficiary of a couple of net points of that movie, which I am still seeing money on today. The movie became a sensation, becoming the first film to make over $300 million. But in the early days, George Lucas and the film set decorator, Roger Christian, barely had enough money to build all the sets and props that they needed. Christian was the third crew member hired to work on Star Wars and immediately had to find ways to stretch a dollar. My budget was so small, I couldn't make anything in the studio, so I'd, I'd always wanted them this way anyway. I found real guns and I adapted them and showed George and he loved them. That was the look. The most famous weapon in Star Wars, maybe the most famous weapon in all of sci-fi, has to be the lightsaber. Waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, God. Now they are pop culture icons immortalized in everything from the YouTube video of the lightsaber kid to episodes of Family Guy. <laughs> but in 1976, they were little more than a strange collection of bits and pieces waiting for Christian to assemble them. With just days before the props had to be sent to location, Christian still hadn't dealt with the lightsaber. Desperate for inspiration, he went to a favorite camera shop in London. There, he found an old press camera and handle used to bounce the flash. That became the base of the iconic lightsaber. Christian picks up the story. I just went, oh my God, here it is. And so I raced back to the studios. I stuck T-strip that I used on the Sterling submachine guns for the stormtroopers around for a handle. I'd broken some calculators down and I found these bubble strips where the light was and I thought, that's nice. And there was a clip on the side and I didn't want to take it off because it held the two pieces together. So I put the bubble strip in there, found some chrome tape, stuck it around the name and called George over and said, you better come and look at this. And he held it and just smiled. And that was George's yeah. affirmation. Wow, you found it. Here, Christian talks about the humble beginnings of one of the movie's most famous characters. And then literally, we had no money. He would bring from his garage at home plywood and <laughs> wheelbarrow wheels, and we made R2-D2 in wood. And I found a lamp top from a scrap pile that fitted and I found airplane scrap nozzles for lighting and uh, air, and I stuck those on ITD too, and I, I carved his little arms out at night with a penknife because we couldn't do anything else. <laughs> and we were building it around Kenny Baker because if we couldn't get R2-D2 to work, we didn't have a movie. Right. Today, everyone knows the name R2-D2, but where did the unusual moniker for the resourceful and spunky droid come from? George Lucas explains. R2-D2 is got a lot of backstory to it, was when I was doing American Graffiti. A uh, very, very close friend of mine from college who I worked with forever and was a sound designer and an editor, Walter Murch. We were mixing the movie together because we were we did everything. And he said, okay, we're ready to move on to the next reel. So uh, go get Reel 2 Dialogue 2. Uh, wow. Go get R2-D2. And I said, R2-D2, that's a great name. So I just wrote it down and just said, but that's what it is. It's really Reel 2 Dialogue 2 of... American graffiti. Of course, R2-D2's partner in the movie was protocol droid C-3PO. I've got to rest before I fall apart. My joints are almost frozen. What a desolate place this is. Where do you think you're going? Well, I'm not going that way. It's much too rocky. This way is much easier. What makes you think there are settlements over there? 
Don't get technical with me. What mission? What are you talking about? Here, Anthony Daniels talks about how he came to play the iconic gold character. Well, I was reluctant to, to meet George Lucas for an interview to discuss this uh, low-budget sci-fi movie for the part of a robot in a suit. Um, I was parading around on stage uh, live, you know, with a live reaction um, in, a, in, you know, quasi-Shakespeare stuff and all that. I think I was a bit snobby. It didn't seem a, a good idea. Two things convinced him to take the role. First, Ralph McQuarrie's beautiful concept art of the shiny gold droid. And secondly, the script, which fleshed out the character. Everything was wrong in his world. He was not doing the job he was designed for. He didn't like battles. Did you hear that? They shut down the main reactor. will be destroyed for sure. This is madness. And the genius uh, also of making him part of a double act with this uh, R2-D2, um, clearly with different facets so that R2 beeps. And 3PO is, of course, terribly upmarket and a bit sort of uh, bossy and knows better. But, of course, R2-D2 tends to go the direct route, um, which is very irritating. You watch your language. So I liked that in the script. And uh, the next day, literally went back and this time was a little more nervous uh, at the meeting with George. And after an hour, I said, um, well, may I, may I play the part? And he went, sure. <laughs> and as I say, one syllable, it wasn't even a word, sure. Literally changed my life. Playing that role has given me experiences like no other. On set in Tunisia in March 1976, Daniels discovered that making movies wasn't as glamorous as he thought it would be. There I am thinking that it's all going to be glamour out on a film set in the desert. Mm -hmm. I was in a tent with six people taking two hours to stick all these bits around me, 17 pieces created out of aluminum and, and plastic and fiberglass and, and rubber and me. And that was painful and odd. But the, the payoff, I suppose, came when finally 3PO was ready and the tent, they pulled the tent flaps back. And I moved out warily, gingerly, into the sunlight in the desert. And I could see through the little peepholes in 3PO's eyes, the whole crew just stopped and gazed in wonder in my direction. They weren't seeing me, they were seeing something that nobody had seen before. Coming up on our in-depth look at Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, you'll hear from Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, and Oscar Isaac, the stars of the film, and we'll also introduce you to Jonas Suetamo and find out what it takes to bring a Wookiee to life. The maintenance to this suit, the suits that I use are, it's ridiculous. They, they need to do a lot of work so that it maintains its look, mm -hmm. so that it doesn't, because it starts to get matted. It's not, not, no more fluff and uh, it gets matted and, the, 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 and uh, also the tangles form and it, yeah, it's a, it's a mess if you don't clean it. Right. So it's that's why my hats goes off to those who built their own suits and who wear it in, in, in conventions, because uh, <laughs> there's a team doing that in, in the films. I'm Richard Krause. This is a special look at Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. If this mission fails, it was all for nothing. Stay with us. I'm Richard Krause. This is a special look at Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Star Wars. It means family. The emotion of it all. 
making a film with people that you really love. And this is the last one. Like, it's crazy. What are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look at my friends. Roll cameras. The feeling on set is one of joy. I really like with this film that we get a lot more scenes together, especially myself, Oscar, and Daisy. The dynamic between us three is capturing some of that spirit of the original films. It feels like kids going on an adventure. Cut. That was great. And then it was fun, too, because I hadn't properly worked with Oscar before. And he and John are hilarious. That's my boy, man. We can be a bit cheeky sometimes. <laughs> but as long as he's right next to me, I can do anything. <laughs> the Star Wars universe has created friendships that have lasted for 40 plus years. I've fallen deeply, deeply in love with this man. So to capture that spirit and bring it to a conclusion has been such an amazing task. It felt nice to stand there with Daisy and Oscar and kind of like, oh wow, like this is truly the end of our contribution to this saga. But the legacy will carry on. I'm Richard Krauss, and you're listening to a special look at Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Next up, we meet the stage actor, former insurance agent, and basketball star who now plays the iconic Wookiee character Chewbacca in Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. His name is Jonas Sumitomo, and he says he was borderline jobless who was living with his mother when he answered a worldwide casting call for a seven-foot actor with blue eyes. He got the gig and took over the role from Peter Mayhew first as a body double in The Force Awakens and later as the lead in The Last Jedi and Solo, A Star Wars Story. Here's Jonas Sumitomo on how he won the role. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, what can you tell me about the audition to play Chewbacca? How did you audition? It was too long, five months. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was fun. I, was, I had some... Sleepless moments, sleepless nights, thinking about what if, what if I get it, what, how it's going to change my life, and it, it has changed my life. I, it's brought more, uh, more security and more possibilities, and 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 it's been it's been wonderful uh, to to work, and and plus it's been very exciting to have a have a sort of purpose where you get to uh, play this character that everybody loves, and mm -hmm. and that means so much to people. And Were you nervous at all? Because as you say, this character means so much to people. And Peter Mayhew, who you knew and, and, and worked with, uh, yeah. had played him for so long, and now it's someone new. Were you nervous about the reaction? Absolutely. Yeah. I was uh, always nervous that I wouldn't live up to right. this, uh, the, this uh, essence of the character, that, that it would be somehow different. And it, of course, I see the difference. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I think the I think it's there that the uh, that the character occupies the similar space that that he that he did and uh, some things uh, uh, some things uh, change but some things stay the same so that that's a goal achieved. And you went to a, a Wookiee boot <clears throat> camp. What happens at a Wookiee boot camp? You eat lots of kashik nuts. <laughs> no, it's uh, it was me and Peter for a week, uh, sitting down, mm -hmm. discussing, and rehearsing 
the kind of stuff that Peter used to do right. in the Sioux. And learning how to walk and doing yes. all that sort of thing. Yeah. The physical aspect of this is so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it's mostly physical acting mm-hmm. that that I have to do. And, but also decisions about um, uh, reactions and stuff like that. But mostly it's, it's about learning to physically portray that character. When you see the script, I don't speak Wookiee. I don't know how many people in the world do, but it's, when you see the script, yeah, is there English in there? Yeah, English. Uh, uh, Chewy, either Chewy moans or Chewy parentheses. What What are you doing? Or right. bring me pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know what his intention is. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And so and that must be invaluable to you as an actor. Then it's it's fun to yeah. know what they meant rather than a single one line. He moans. <laughs> <laughs> where I'm just like, where it's it's a yes or no. If it's yes or no, it's usually a, ch- a chewy moans. Yes. But if it's, uh, or, or something like or that. Or if there's yeah. something longer, yeah, 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 yeah that yeah. moves the story forward. Something like that. Now, the shoot days are long. You're probably on set for 10, 12, maybe more hours. Is the suit hot? Extremely. Is yeah, it? it's and boiling. And how do they cool it? It's boiling hot. You, <laughs> you sometimes, uh, at the end of the day, you, you really... Yeah. You're really out of it because you're so you've been in this uh, heated, <laughs> hairy suit for so long that you just start think, not thinking straight and just watching. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's gru- grueling. Yeah, and you don't get to take it home. How often do, do they clean it? They clean it almost every day. They have to do something. <laughs> the maintenance to this suit, the suits that I use are it's ridiculous. They they need to do a lot of work so that it maintains its look mm-hmm. so that it doesn't because it starts to get matted it's not no, no more fluff and uh it gets matted and the the, the and uh, also the tangles form and it yeah it's a, it's a mess if you don't clean it right. so it's that's why my hats goes off to those who built their own suits right. and who wear it in in, in conventions because uh <laughs> it's, there's a team doing yeah. that in, in the films but yeah and you meet fans at these conventions and things. What's their response to you? How do they how do they approach you? I'm the same as my gratitude. Yeah, they're, they're they're grateful, and I'm grateful. It's it's a very mutual relationship. That was Jonas Sumitamo, the man who plays Chewbacca in Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll meet Greg Mason, the vice president of marketing for Disney. Nothing beats the communal movie experience of watching, embracing, and enjoying a movie in the theater. And Star Wars is a movie you have to see on the big screen. The Rise of Skywalker, that final culmination, don't miss it. You've got to be on there on the big screen. And we have an exclusive interview with Anthony Daniels talking about his new book, I Am C-3PO. You can see all the other characters, the other actors aging. 3PO doesn't age, uh, he does inside. I'm Richard Krauss, and you're listening to a special look at Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Stay with us. I'm Richard Krauss. Welcome back to our special in depth look at Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. In studio, I'm pleased to welcome Greg Mason. He's the Vice President of Marketing for Lucasfilm in Canada. Greg, you have a giant weekend coming up. Are you ready? 
We are ready. It has all been building up to this, Richard. This is the culmination of all of the films. Listen, I think back to when I was eight years old watching the first Star Wars in uh, Fairview Mall, the Odeon Theater, (laughs) and to be here today to watch this and see the culmination of the Skywalker saga is pretty incredible. How have your marketing efforts changed over the years? I mean, you always do something big. These movies, though, it it kind of strikes me that you don't really have to market them. I mean, I I would think you could open them and just, you know, run an ad in the newspaper and people would line up. But is that the case these days? I think we we take the marketing of the films very seriously. um, And a big part of it is holding back and not giving too much away. And I think that is the beauty of Star Wars. Um, it's really nice to enjoy it yourself without having things spoiled. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trailer does not give everything away, and we try to keep as much tight to the chest as possible. And we also just need to be very respectful to the fans. The fan base is ravenous uh, you know, and huge for the Star Wars universe. So everything we do, we really think long and hard, and we're very careful on what we put out in the marketplace to as a tribute to fans. And people must be squeezing you for information. You have... I'm guessing, you won't probably say, but you've probably seen it already uh, long before anybody else, uh, or at least know what's going on. What kind of things are people asking you? Well, I get squeezed on a daily basis, and I have to remain tight-lipped. I I like my job too much, um, but uh, it's very tempting. We're very fortunate to see things in advance, uh, but, uh, you know, you wind up, you go home, and you're just dying to tell somebody because you see something that is so big and epic that you're, that's very, very special. And Star Wars uh, is definitely at the top of that list. I might have told my dog, but that's about it. Right, and no one else. Yeah, and yeah. no one else. And you have to be careful because any spoilers really do take away from the idea that you can just go and watch the movie and, and be surprised and transported by it. Correct, yeah. No, I think, I think that's what uh, makes Star Wars so special is you want to embrace it the first time. And when was your first experience? You said the Fairview Mall. Was it for the first film? The very first the film. Uh, well, the, for the very first film, that, that was one of my first in theaters at the Fairview Mall. And I was the Odeon Theater. It was a twin. I went down to the basement. My, <laughs> my parents took me, and you're just transported. Yeah. I, I remember that vividly. Uh, and if I could tell eight-year-old Greg Mason that you're going to be working on, uh, you know, five Star Wars films and you're going to finish the Skywalker saga on a marketing perspective, uh, I think my head would have been blown. So it's been a real privilege. My guest today in studio is Greg Mason, VP of Marketing for Lucasfilm in Canada. This is the end of the Skywalker saga, but it's not the end of Star Wars. There's still going to be lots more to come. What can you tell us about? The Mandalorian's already on Disney+. Plus. What else will there be? Well, The Mandalorian has been a real treat and a and surprise for many. And, uh, you know, the child, as we refer to him, I know a lot of people calling him Baby Yoda, but I will not <laughs> confirm or deny anything. But the child is a, a very special character that is surprising people. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, it is well worth uh, tuning in. Uh, John Favreau did a phenomenal job on it, and we're releasing episodes every week. Uh, so, And we've already greenlit uh, season two for Mandalorian, which will be out next year. So there's uh, that is in the works, and there are a lot of other projects in the works. Not what I can really talk about right, right now, but uh, we're not done with the Star Wars universe. Baby Yoda, from what I understand, is not Yoda as a baby. He's a baby creature of the Yoda species. That's what I understand. It's a really neat thing that you understand. I will not confirm or deny really? anything. I can't get any details from anybody. Uh, but but that's the that's the secret. That's the key to working on these things is to build up anticipation. It certainly is. Yeah. 
And uh, what's next then for you where after you work on, on something like this? I mean, you probably market how many films a year? 20 films a year? We are going to 44 campaigns a year now that we have Fox Films, Disney Plus. That is a head-spinning amount. It, it is a head-spinning amount, but we're, we're very excited. The lineup is terrific. We're very proud of all of our divisions, mm-hmm. Pixar, Lucasfilm, uh, Disney, Marvel. It's, it's been incredible. And our, all our friends at Fox that have joined us, uh, we've got a really terrific lineup. We're very fortunate. What are some of the things that you would do as a marketer to promote this. We've just come from a pop-up on Queen Street in Toronto that has little dioramas that you can have your photograph taken in. What else happens when you market a film this big? Well, and that pop-up is an Instagrammer's uh, dream we have up in Toronto right now. Um, and we really did that as, as sort of a love affair for the whole saga for, for the fans. Um, we, we have a lot of things. We're, we're really kind of now into the final phase of uh, making sure just everybody knows that we've added additional screens and show times. We want to make sure that people can get in. I know right. sometimes people think, oh, I can't even get in opening weekend. So we're working very hard to make sure that it's accessible and that people know that you can get in opening weekend. And uh, really just kind of building up to that, that final culmination when it hits theaters next Thursday. That was Greg Mason, Vice President of Marketing for Lucasfilm in Canada. Now we have an exclusive conversation with Anthony Daniels, one of the stars of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. We talk about the movie and his new book, I Am C-3PO. Congratulations on the book. <laughs> Thank you. What do you remember from appearing in She Stoops to Conquer? Oh, wow, that was the very first play I was ever in that I got paid to be in. And I re- basically, I was, I suppose, playing an extra. But to begin with, it was, I think his name was Diggory, who was a very old man. So I had a wig, I had side mutton chops, I had moustache, I had a beard. And every night I would glue it on absolutely professionally, properly, whatever, I would become this old man. But then I had to always come off stage, take it all off, and become a sort of young servant with no hair. And then I'd have to glue it all back on again. And eventually, after about a couple of weeks, I think I just decided I took everything and knitted it together in one piece <laughs> and just put like, it on. Like a whole it, face it wig or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I remember um, it was one of those shows that started, uh, I was on stage. And, and it was a grassy bank and everything, and it was a beautiful set with a house in it. And it was real grass, and they, they put, and I would be asleep at the beginning on the grass, or, you know, um, with a straw in my mouth, probably horribly overacting. <laughs> but gradually, as the set evolved, they would put grow lights on it at night to keep the grass fresh. And of course, it had its own ecosystem. So, you know, one day I'm lying there on the grass, the audience coming in, and I can just feel this, this sort of earwig thing happening here. Oh, no. not, not a good start to the show. <laughs> Wonderful memory, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thing went downhill from then on. But, but it was your, your first paid professional gig. And, and yeah, after I'd left the BBC, I'd done six months with their radio company. It was gorgeous. And I'm afraid I two-timed them at the Watford Palace Theatre, mm. uh, just out of London. And then uh, I did another uh, play with um, uh, Forget Me Not Lane. That was just gorgeous. Um, and then I moved into London. I was invited to join the Young Vic Company. In and London. what was it about that? You started 
acting school at age 24, which was a little later than probably some of your, your yeah. colleagues and, and the people that were in school with you. Uh, but was it the applause? Was it the uh, notice? What was it that, that drew you to it? To be drawn to be an actor was a really stupid thing. I couldn't help it. I had no control over it. I tried to suppress it for years yeah. and then eventually just admit that this is what you want to do and it's okay. Uh, it doesn't harm anyone. <laughs> Probably going to harm you because you're never going to make a living. But it was just a, a want that I had. No explanation. You talk about harm. Uh, one of the takeaways from this book, I Am C-3PO, The Inside Story, is that the suit was incredibly uncomfortable and dangerous. If there was, I'm looking at the floor here, I'm guessing you couldn't navigate this floor here because we've got these metal rivets on it that would have caused yep, you that, to that'd up. kill me, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I had to be really careful, really sort of, uh, and people would look out for me, but they wouldn't necessarily notice the little bump because right. it doesn't look like anything. And I have fallen over so many times in that costume, but fortunately never actually, apart from ow, right. uh, never never broken anything. Broken bits of the costume, obviously, but they can replace that. <laughs> they can't replace me. <laughs> no, they can't. And uh, did the, the uncomfortable nature of the suit, how did it feed the performance, or, or did it? I, I'm not sure. I can walk pretty much normally in the suit. Um, you know, it's not comfortable, but it looks like a person in a metal suit walking, mm -hmm. whereas 3PO I developed, eventually developed. This kind of personality walk, if you will, never put it that way before. But he is sort of who he is. And he's sort of more, I was gonna say, more interesting than a human. You know what I mean. You're listening to my exclusive interview with Anthony Daniels, the man who plays C-3PO in Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. When we come back, we talk more about his book, I Am C-3PO, and if he's ready to let the character go. What are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir, at my friend. Stay with us. Your journey. Yes, it's in. I'm Richard Krause. You're listening to an in-depth look at Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. One of the film stars, Anthony Daniels, was recently in Canada on a book promo tour talking about his new book, I Am C-3PO. I had the exclusive chance to sit down and talk to him while he was here. We did an event last night with 200 people in the audience, and when I brought you up on stage, I looked down at the audience, and there was just this, it was like Santa Claus had just shown up. <laughs> it was really lovely, and, and to see the looks on everyone's faces, because you are that character that they've grown yeah. up loving. Uh, what does that mean to you? It makes me, it makes me feel kind of warm um, that people, when, when you work uh, on a fairly tough thing, it's really nice when people like what you did. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes it, you know, after the fact, makes it worthwhile. And to see something that I hadn't quite understood, mm -hmm. this, this longevity, this, Especially when I drop into, you know, hello, I am C-3PO, <laughs> human cyborg relations. You see people living their childhood again. Yeah. It is, you know, the old guy is the gold guy. <laughs> it's quite a neat line. I may use that again. Yes, yeah. The old guy is the gold guy. <laughs> or the gold guy is the old guy. Because 43 years on, you know, yeah. you can see all the other characters, the other actors aging. 3PO doesn't age. 
uh, he does inside. He does inside. And do you think that the character has changed over the years? What what do you see as the person in the gold suit? How three, has he changed? Yeah, three pair doesn't really change because a machine is a machine. Mm -hmm. You know, he gets a few dents. You know, he's he's like an old car that you've driven around. That's There's right. a few scratches, a few bumps, whatever. But he's very dependent on where the writers and the director places him. I give the analogy, if you like, a, a microwave is a microwave is a microwave, right. but you can cook different things inside it. And basically, I think it's not a bad analogy, it's where he is placed. And thank goodness, as we move to the, the finality of this Skywalker saga, um, JJ and Chris Terrio, the writer, have given him some fun things to do, as people will eventually see. No spoilers. Yeah, we'll say nothing. There will be no spoilers here. Uh, are you? Were you ready to let him go? Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, only as far I would put the the writer. Only as far as the movies go. There is plenty of life left there, and we're already discussing some, yes. uh, some projects. So certainly, I think it would be, it would have been a shame if the Skywalker saga had gone on like days of our lives, right. which I know a lot of people like. Yeah. But nevertheless, that's not what the Star Wars saga should be about. It is that whole library, if you will. And now Disney and all the guys are looking to other things. The Mandalorian is coming up next. And um, there is so much space out there to inhabit with stuff to do with Star Wars. And I'm not greedy or possessive or anything like that, I hope. I'm very happy with this encapsulation from episode four through five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, now nine. It seemed the right time and the right time to write the book. It is the third finale. It must, sometimes when you reflect back, I mean, I know it wasn't always an easy ride, but right. when you reflect back, you thought, okay, after the third yeah. movie, the first time, well, that's going to be it. And then it happens yeah, again, sure. and now it's happened again. And it, it, it really struck me for the first time as I finished my last scene in, in the next movie that I suddenly thought that this is the third time I'm saying goodbye. Yeah. And who, who knew that, and each time, um, this time it, it, it did feel a bit more um, gut-wrenching really. Um, I tried to n not be too overt about my feelings, but I was quite moved that this, um, this thing quite rightly was passing away from me uh, and what was lovely on the set the crew the director the other actors are so loving that it, it did it, it felt uh, what's the word bittersweet but quite a lot of sweetness there that um, the crew hugely supportive you know or, or ready to leap in if I do fall over right. that kind of thing but they'd all grown up yeah. with uh, Luke Skywalker, with 3PO, with Darth Vader, all that kind of thing. That's the difference making these last series of films, is that everyone on that set had grown up watching these movies. It's not like the first time or the yeah. second time around. This is a, a different level. And even people who'd, who'd grown up watching the, uh, the prequels as their first set of films, because they're young enough, you know, yeah. and those films were made for young people. They are now in their 30s and yeah. uh, whatever. But there was a whole... Um, history of people around me who got what J.J. Abrams was trying to do by, by bringing this story together. And the magic thing, almost by happenstance, is that I've written the book at a time when I could talk about all nine movies, including the nine, in roundabout terms, without spoiling or anything. But it just seemed to me that hanging rail with the, the films on, and then all sorts of ancillary stories, 
it was the right time. It was a bit of uh, the force coming in there to say, do it now. <laughs> well, it very much focuses on Star Wars. We, it, it, we don't learn about your, your life outside of yeah. that realm. What, why make that decision? It was an absolutely deliberate dis, uh, decision. Uh, I discussed it with Christine, my wife, and she said, no, it's absolutely right, because you know, it has been 40 years of uh, all sorts of stuff. And I didn't, you know, reading other people's work, and I certainly wouldn't criticize them, um, I realized there's enough to say about the weirdness that is around Star Wars that um, bringing in my personal life seemed absolutely kind of ir irrelevant. There are moments, for instance, and I think right at the beginning, I so well remember my pleasure of, because I'm a bit of a backstage guy, I quite like production, right. you know. And so for me, I think the windows were about that size, and I would be allowed to close them, they'd hold me up and I would pull the strings, do you know, to end the book. Because that theatrical reveal, right. something magic's happening behind this screen here. And so there was, that's a, a very, I must have been about three or four, you know. Um, that's a personal thing. I briefly talk about learning to scuba dive because suddenly it had a relevance to, to something that would happen years later. Right. And in putting together a memoir, you suddenly realize there are connections between, which you've never realized before, mm -hmm. and they're just tiny. There's nothing, you know, groundbreaking in this, but it does have my feelings in there, which I'm able, hopefully, to express without people going, oh yeah, whatever, get over it. Well, I was, I was fascinated to read uh, how in the early stages of the success of the original Star Wars film, A New Hope, um, that they wanted to keep you sort of out of the picture because they wanted people to not think that there was a human yeah. inside the, the, the costume. Yeah, and that, that was a difficult time for me because, you know, I'd put in to the movie and then didn't really get anything out of yeah. it. And it's like, after all that stuff I'd done, it felt, it felt a little unkind, I will be honest, and I talk about it. Because at a certain point, you need to say something. And I can now say it gently. Although it did revive in thinking about it, in writing about it, it did revive some uh, difficult emotions. And then I got through that and I put it on paper and hopefully people will accept it. As an example of a life lived, just as they're living their life and it's all, it's not all brilliant, is it? Yeah. You know, so I'm no different from anybody else, <laughs> except I did half of it <laughs> in a cold suit. You talk about being a secret outcast is yeah. the is the term that I remember from the book, yeah. and and I thought that was such a a, a lovely uh, way of putting those two words together, yeah. uh, because uh, you it, it it really to me struck a chord uh, of of the depth of the feeling that you had about this. You're yeah. seeing you're the first non-human on the cover of People magazine, but your name's not on the cover, and that sort of thing. And, the and name was inside, yeah. uh, to, to be fair, a whole article, but, you know, uh, people were not really focusing yeah. on that. Um, and all the time, as I say, the, the just always everywhere of Star Wars, I could not avoid it, even though I wanted to. Yeah. I, I uh, felt so cut off from it that I didn't want to hear about it, mm -hmm. you know, and yet there's John's beloved music in my ears everywhere. There's posters, there's everything, there's TV, there's references in papers and books, and very rarely referencing me, and it just felt, you know, really like being punctured over and over again. It was, 
a bad time that I can talk about now against the good times that followed. Because I nearly gave up. I nearly said, well, you know, you don't want me, I don't want you. Right. Um, but I didn't. And so I can, I can be here now and talk about the whole picture. And the book is very often, as we get into the, to the latter part of the book, it's a happy story. This is a, yeah, you, the, yeah. the, the uh, career, the making of the last films, these last series of films, yeah. seems uh, to me like it was a happy experience, like it was a different, much different experience very than different, the first. Very different, very happy. And the, mm -hmm. the note that Mark Hamill uh, wrote to you, emailed mm -hmm. to you, most people dash off an email and it's one or two lines, hey, it was great working with you, yes. we'll, we'll see you at the <laughs> bar sometime. But he took the time to write you a really lovely note. Yeah. And, and, and that, I think, speaks to who you are and who he is. And I asked his permission to, uh, to put it verbatim mm -hmm. in, in the book, I wouldn't change it for a second. And uh, I, I, was, I say I'm very touched by this thing, and it's there. And it does speak to his humanity. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I talk about Carrie Fisher's humanity. Yeah. You know, she was crazy, all the stuff. But what a lovely person. Yeah. And now, of course, we talk in this year, uh, quite normally people are passing away. I'm, th I'm thinking of phrases like 10 green bottles hanging on a wall, yeah. you know, one day. So yeah. there we are. Uh, why do you think that Star Wars has resonated with people? The looks on every member of that audience's faces last night, yeah. uh, it, it's, it's a different kind of fandom than other things. I yes, think. it is. And it really, I think, speaks to George Lucas's inspiration, his dedication, his, his looking into literature, looking into pop culture at the time, mm -hmm. um, which was pretty raw. It was mostly comic books, I think. Um, but he also studied the, the concept of uh, ancient legends and myths and what makes them resonate. And often, of course, it is the, the family, <laughs> I mean, some terrifying family yeah. stuff in there in ancient Greek and Roman mm -hmm. literature. And he absorbed it and he kind of put it all in a blender. And it came out, the ingredients were old and well known, but he arranged it in a different pattern. And it does speak to his intelligent research, his inventiveness, that we are talking about it 43 years on. So all power to him, because nobody believed him back then that it would work. That was Anthony Daniels talking about playing C-3PO for possibly the final time in Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. The film opens on December 19th, so why not hire a Mandalorian to look after the kids and head out to a theater near you? We'll talk to you again next week.